Welcome to Two Peed Kairos with Christian Flutter and Mike Marinas. Hello and welcome to Two Peed Kairos. As always, we're here to keep you company and talk a lot of uh, interesting stuff today. It's all research-based around pediatric chiropractic. So I'm here with my partner in crime, uh, Dr. Christian Flutter. How are you, sir? Mike, I am very well. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm delightfully joined by a lovely coffee with oat milk and honey, making N equals, what, two or three now? And I, I've been pleasantly surprised. We I've are been pleasantly surprised. One step at a time. That's it. That's it. Um, I, I'm so glad that we're talking about this one tonight. Tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, research. And here, like we were talking about N equals three kind of studies. Here, yeah. we're talking, what we're picking on tonight is some of the stuff that's come out in the last little bit of time, like the last month or two, uh, research that's really caught our attention and, and really we want to bring to the forefront and have a bit of a chat about it and how it's impacting firstly clinically and what it means for us. You know, what does it actually mean? And Mike, I'd love to dive right in on the first paper tonight. Please jump uh, in. Let's go. So the paper that I want to pick on first was published in BMC Pediatrics in 2021. Mm -hmm. And it is called The Association Between Colic and Sleep Problems in Infancy and Subsequent Development, Emotional and Behavioral Problems, a Longitudinal Study. Now, this is done by Vala et al., so Elizabeth Vala et al., and it's a, it's a bunch of Norwegian uh, researchers looking at a bunch of Norwegian children and uh, with a bunch of Norwegian problems, and they're showing a whole bunch of Norwegian delays. Wow. Uh, so it's, yeah. yeah, it's a very interesting thing. And I'll tell you what's made it really interesting for me because do you guys have uh, this purple crying stuff over in the UK? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure how, how much they use it in the UK. I know in South Africa it was quite a big story. It was Ronald Barr's idea that came out of um, trying to give parents something to latch onto about what crying yeah. was about and purple, all the letters stand for, stand for different correct, things. Correct, correct. I that. haven't heard much about it in the UK, but I know in South Africa it was, it was round and about. Yeah, well, down here in Australia, we, we actually get quite a few parents coming through and just told, oh, look, it's just this purple crying. And for those playing at home, so P is your peak of, well, the first P is peak of crying, then unexpected, resist soothing, pain-like face, long-lasting, and it happens in the evening. So it makes an acronym purple. And um, what's, uh, yeah, it, it's one of these ones that really bugs me because they look at it and they go, it's just a period of crying. Don't worry about it. Your kids are going to be fine. They'll grow out. And um, as we understand with colic, look, yes, a good subset of children do, in fact, grow out of colicky kind of behaviors. But what else do we know, Mike? We know that. Yeah, look, this is here, the, the first thing for me. And I've, this is a bugbear for me. And I need to get this off my chest when it comes to purple crying. Because what purple crying, in my opinion, in my lowly little opinion, what it, what it is explaining is how children in a westernized setup will potentially end up crying. It explains what the what the almost acceptable maximum people be of that when we sleep the way we sleep, feed them the way we feed them, when we do things that are away from the biological norm. So I've always thought of purple crying the same way as you could have purple crying if you worked in a factory without boots. And that and purple would stand for explaining when the wrench fell on your foot, when this happened, when that happened, when having said, if you had all of those proper things in place, it wouldn't exist. So what the, for me, purple has always been to almost try and normalize 
the Western way that we deal with children and go, mm-hmm. these are the outcomes, but then the fluff becomes, but it's normal. It's not normal. It's common for what happens the same way as certain things are common. If you walk around a factory without boots. So that's it. That's it. I like that. Talking of the difference between normal versus common. Yeah, and you see for that to happen. If those are your parameters, it is, it is, it is. And this is, this is also, yeah, common to do both ankles. You know, it's 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 not common to do both ankles if you just go on a walk with your dog. But if you do fall down a cliff, you know, good chance of doing it. Yeah, yeah. it's it. not normal. But if you know, if that parameters, <laughs> there go your ankles. No, no. If falling down a cliff while walking your dog is normal, I'd recommend moving. It's probably not <laughs> not yeah, no. not a good place to be. Get a cat. But that's the thing. That's the thing. So they keep on talking about this being normal. And you know what? Their their websites. I'm actually busy working a YouTube video on this one because it and oh my goodness, I went into full rant mode. It's it's quite dangerous. And it's 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 this whole concept of there is no consequence. You know, there's no ill effect. It doesn't have any long-term outcomes. It doesn't impact on long-term outcomes. And, you know, this, this, this is one of these things I'm kind of going, ah, oh, it just doesn't sit so well with me. Yeah. See, in, in 2015, uh, I keep on getting the chap's name wrong, Goxon, G-O-K-S-A-N. They the did an FMRI FMRI study. There, that's the one. He did the FMRI, FMRI study looking at pain regions and pain perception in, in infants. And it was great. You know, they found a, a strong overlap between infants and adults. Uh, I believe it was, what, 18 out of the 20 areas mm-hmm. of pain perception were the same between kids and adults. I think the only two areas that weren't were um, involved in, like, your, your emotional association of yeah. that pain. So you'll feel sadness when, when you drop a wrench on your foot, um, whereas babies haven't had that chance to develop that emotional association at that stage. Um and so you kind of go, well, if they're experiencing pain, you know, you can't just write it off as being nothing. Well, that, and this, this is exactly the point. It's like, it's like saying um, that the, they're experiencing pain, but because they don't have that emotional link and that ability to be able to bring it out in a way that would draw empathy from the viewer at the time that it happens, you go, well, it hasn't happened. And that's the problem because that's the, the definition of pain is, it, it's it's whatever the person feels whenever they say that they feel it. And the problem with infants is they don't have sometimes, and that's that whole Goxon thing where it doesn't light it up. They sometimes miss the ability to tell you. Just because it. it doesn't mean doesn't it's not. mean. And we should know, we should have, because well, we have the data, we know that it happens. And just because they don't see it and it doesn't come out, we should be able to infer, you know, in our clinical that's- Exactly. And, you know, so this is what I really liked with this Valor paper. So what this Valor paper was, is they looked at, uh, let me just pull it up here, it was 86,724 infants. Okay. And what they did gonna, is the sample group. Is Look, uh, I'm going to say it's, it's probably a little bit more weighted, more powered than our N equals three coffee study. You know, I have, just, I have a picture of a football stadium just full of babies. Because that's, that's it. That's how did you read that? That's in the methods. They got a whole bunch of babies in a football stadium and they just asked them, you know. So, so yeah. So they got to Wembley Stadium and they filled it up with babies and um, they asked, I'm sure Wembley is about 86,000 or so, isn't it? 
Like, I yep. think it is measured in babies. That's it. Sorry, I've just I've just realised my son oh. walking around behind me there. So it's, for it. those of you watching, uh, if we do decide to put the videos up, you'll, you'll see my son wandering around. We've got quails on our balcony out here, so he's probably going to make sure that they're still you know alive. It's kind of uh, yeah, that's what he's doing. It's kind of hot down here at the moment. It's delightful. Uh, nothing like roasted quail. Uh, anyway, so we were talking about um, Wembley Stadium. Yep, so these they took a whole bunch of babies and they asked the parents, uh, does your child experience colic? Okay, it's not, it's not the best way of determining this one, but colic's definition is still already very variable, you know, very subjective. Wessel's criteria has changed. The Rome criteria has changed. So there's a lot of subjectivity in, return, in regards to the defining of colic. And so they just asked a simple yes, no, do you believe your child's had colic? And um, that was able to categorize uh, these children. Now, what they also did is they used the ages and stages questionnaire. Okay, ages and stages questionnaire and the um, child behavior checklist. Okay, the CBCL uh, tool. Now, I love these two checklists. Okay, we use ages and stages. We do use behavioral things quite frequently. And I find it's it's really useful clinical tool to be able to see and monitor how, how kids are coming along. So anyway, they use the stage two, uh, type two, no, addition to ASQ. Yeah. And then they started looking at some of the tie-ins. And sure enough, the kids with colic, oh, no, backtrack. They also looked at kids with sleeping difficulties. Yeah. Okay. Now, that's one of the tie-ins we do see with colic is there's a tie-in between sleeping difficulty and unsettled behavior uh, think about it when you're unsettled you don't tend to sleep so well yep. and if i could i'm just going to read out with the um the uh results here so looking at the asq side of things they uh, ass assessed possible differences over time between children who had colic and children who did not have colic and compared to the baseline ASQ scores were slightly but statistically significantly lower at five years of age. Okay. Then they looked at the CBCL questionnaire. Okay. Children with colic at baseline uh, scored significantly higher on internalizing behavioral problems at three years and five years. Okay. Internalizing behaviors. That's more like our anxieties, our depressions, Okay, kids who complain about aches and pains, somatic-based issues. Okay, um, they found that they, if the kids slept, if they didn't sleep enough, then we've got problems on that, uh, the internalizing behaviors again as well at three and five years. Kids who awoke frequently at night are uh, scoring higher with, again, internalizing problems. Uh, so what we're seeing here is a long-term consequence of colicky behavior, yeah. you know, and... This, to me, is incredibly important. Now, I, I was really pleased. The authors went on to discuss as to why this could occur, and uh, they put down possibilities based on the parents and possibilities based on the infant. And so with the parent, they said, look, a parent who is waking up multiple times during the night is going to become very tired. Okay, a, a tired parent just doesn't have the energy to interact and help baby develop because you know what? It's when babies are asleep, that's when they grow. When they're awake, that's when they learn. And if we're not able to provide some stimulation, then we're not going to help them grow and develop. Yep. 
Now, the other side of that is on the baby side. And then they looked at kids who weren't sleeping. Well, there's going to be difficulties in creating connections inside their brains. So emotional centers had a hard time developing. And um, as we know, that just sort of flows on to the next part. And the next thing we know is we've got a developmental issue. So incredibly useful paper. So I I think there's a couple of things to pick out here. The first thing is when when they talk about uh, something like colic and not having long-term consequences, I think it very much depends on what the author thinks the long-term consequences are when they go looking for them. Because if you think the long-term consequence is just going to be more hypersensitivity to pain, fine, it might be. But then also, how are you quantifying it? If you think that it's just going to be a child that's going to cry more later, or if you are interested in looking at reflexive patterns later, or you're interested in looking at like sensory processing later, cognitive processing, it depends. It depends. Mm -hmm. What is it that you're after? as to later. Now, one of the things that I've been looking at um, quite a lot lately, and I'm putting together quite a bit on it, is migraine and colic, migraine oh, and, and fussy yeah. babies. And yep. one of the things that they, that they talk about again and again with a lot of those papers, and it's this Dr. Amy Gelfand, who's done a lot of this work, yep. talks about the fact that sleep, if you look at the relationship between sleep and migraine and sleep and unsettled babies, it almost has the same effect in terms of that um, these they tend to run around your diurnal pattern, patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to both be squashed by a period of sleep. So sleep mm-hmm. seems to be quite integral to both of those. And what's really interesting on that is that they talk about unsettled babies potentially being the expression of that hypersensitivity, which is later expressed as migraine. So that's migraine, that's it. Please don't make the mistake of us saying that it is babies with headaches. It's not what we're saying. Mm. The hypersensitivity that comes out. And it's so interesting that, again, in this paper, they sort of pick those little bits and pieces that show this neurological link as to what's going on. Well, that's it. And you know what? It, this, this type of thing with research, I, I, I've heard a great quote regarding this one. So when we're dealing with research, what we're finding is a piece of a puzzle. Mm. Okay, And we find this little bit of research solves this little piece. And then this bit of research solves this little piece. And it takes a long time to eventually piece together that puzzle that's in front of you. Yeah. Okay. And that kid that's in front of you who is unsettled or who does have a migraine or there might be something else going on, you know, we have to draw information from these different places to be able to be able to completely get this picture uh, clear in front of us. Very much so. Very much so. And the thing is, sometimes you might have the puzzle piece upside down. And it looks oh. like something else, but you might be figuring the other piece of another puzzle. Um, you mm. know, or you may be so sure that it is the elephant's tail. Meanwhile, it's the elephant's ear, but it looks so much like the elephant's tail because it's so zoomed in that you keep squeezing it into the elephant tail piece and it keeps not going. And eventually the rest of the ear comes out and you go, ah, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. That's where that yeah. It's like it's a neuro thing, or it's a, and and it's interesting because if we see these little neuromarkers here, and then we start looking for delay later, then we start going, well, hang on a second, and it very much. But here's my other thing: is that when they say there's no long-term effect, a lot of the time, long-term effect, instead of those words, what is meant by long-term effect is hard and fast disease process that we will later be able to pick up. Not yes. the stuff, 
which is kind of all over the place. And we'll see when we check out the milestone stuff. Now it, it's kind of all over the place. We think mm. what's going on, but it's not diabetes. I can't blood test you and go, you have developmental delay of 8.5. So it's, it, it is a gray area where you can go, look, there's nothing that we can really peg it down to that colic actually lands up on. And as you rightly said, not all of them end up that way. So, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's like, it's like plagiocephaly. We don't know which kids are going to spontaneously fix up. That's right. But we can look at certain risk factors. We can exactly. take the, take different things into account and kind of go, you know what, you're at a greater risk of this occurring. So let's monitor you a little bit differently. Let's keep an eye on things. So anyway, I thought, I thought that was a wonderful paper. And if you've got the time, have a read of it. You know, I feel it's going to be quite good. We'll put links up to that one uh, with, the, uh, with the show episode information, all that kind of whatnot. But uh, Mike, I'm really disappointed when they find out there aren't 86,000 babies in, in Wembley State. <laughs> oh, yes, please, please. That was that was my attempt at humor. And uh, I've actually I, I had a young kid come through the other day and it was it was really it, it's amusing. And I was poking on his tail and I said, oh, yeah, you've got a little problem in your tailbone. And he goes, humans don't have tails. And I said, no, that's right. Your mom had to pull it off when you were first born. And um I said that with that complete deadpan look yeah. and he's looked at me and he's gone, Dr. Christian, I can't tell if you're telling me the truth or if you're actually lying. <laughs> I've had to quickly say, no, 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 no. Your mum didn't pull your tail off. Don't, don't, don't worry. Um, but it's, it's amusing. Um, I, I, you have to apologize. I, you have to get accustomed to my, my humor type. Yeah. If I'm afraid you'll, you'll get there. Uh, so no, the methods don't say Wembley stadium. You need, you need to have a couple of jars of like, <laughs> Play, play foxtails in the back of your office just to go, well, I mean, these are the ones I pulled off this morning. I like it. Is to test out developmental delay by having 86,000 babies in Wembley and getting them to do that queen-like. That's it. That's it. Well, and the ones who who just clap twice instead of the stamps twice, uh, stamp, stomping twice, and clearly developmental delay. It's the, it's the queen protocol. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Okay, so now we're gonna we're gonna take a look. Um, a lot of it is about delay today, which is which is interesting because I think also what that shows us is that's where a lot of the research is pointing. Lately, that's what people are spending their time on at the moment, or or, or seem to be. So what I've pulled out is uh, January twenty twenty two. It's a paper out of Frontiers of Psychiatry, and it's it's called Early Motor Milestones in Infancy and Later Motor Impairments, a population-based data linkage study. So here they're looking at developmental coordination disorder, and me and you are going to understand that as dyspraxia. Yes. That's, that's generally what, what we'll see that as. It's, we know it's a neurodevelopmental condition. We know that the prevalence sits generally at about 6% of the population with 2% of the population really having a hard time with it. And these are the kids that you kind of see, they, when they're younger, they hold those unusual body positions. Um, they have a hard time with like toys, especially if they have to pass them over or stack them, that kind of thing. These are the kids that as they go, have a hard time eating with knife and fork. 
um and also the older kids when they get to sports they find things like hopping and kicking and jumping around are not that easy for them one of the interesting things is also i always write in the beginning it's used to go oh clumsy children are dyspraxic no you do just get clumsy kids and that doesn't mean that they've got dyspraxia in there so that's mm. just that was one of my one of my learning curves anyway what they talked about in this one they took those early motor milestones. So what they did, they took three things. They took crawling, um, which is going to be interesting as we move on to their CDC paper and, and, and how important this is. So they took crawling, they took initial walking, and then they took the distance of time between crawling and walking, and they measured those up. So I thought I was really smart here because my study had 8,395 children. But I mean, you know, uh -huh. what is the 10th of Wembley? So they did that and then they looked at them and then they looked at them again between three and six years old. One of the things I really liked about this paper was that they were, there were 42 separate assessors that assessed over 10,000 kids. And then that brought them down to this 8,000 kids. So, and, and they also looked at the inter-reliability, the inter-rate reliability of those assessors, which was quite good. So again, pulling out the bias of the study, which was nice. Where the bias falls into the study, unfortunately, is they're asking parents of three and six-year-old children what the timing of their kids' milestones was back in the day. So they were expected. Yeah, there's a, a bit of vagueness there usually, isn't there? It is. It is. And and we always remember things a little bit a little bit backwards. We'll know that from chiropractic practice. Someone will come in and say, oh, my friend Jimmy said you sorted him out in two sessions. You look back at Jimmy's notes and it was like 12 sessions and then two months and then he came in six times again. But Jim's feeling so good that he remembers it as the one time. So yeah, exactly. we know that, that stuff happened. So what ended up happening here, they used a movement assessment battery tool. So it's the MABC2, uh, and that's a nice tool to use because it is validated and it's standardized specifically for three to 16 years old. So it's right in this gambit, this age that they were mm -hmm. looking at. So I was pretty happy with the tools. I was pretty happy with the amount of people. And I think this is also a thing. We don't want to be abstract warriors. We want to go in and actually have a look at the study and then also sort of set your parameter when you read the results. So I'm already set going, hang on, there was a bit of recall bias. I get that. Although I'm quite happy with the outcomes because I'm happy with the amount of assessors. I'm happy that this is a tool that's used by OTs and physios and chiros. And so hmm. kind of building my picture as to my amount of faith that, that I'm happy to have when, when it comes out to this to the setup. So what they did was they took all that information from those 8,000 kids and they said, right, what is the mean crawling age that these people have been talking about? What is the mean walking age? And that's what they were going to use for this population. Mean crawling age, 8.1 months, sounds about fair. Independent walking, 12.6 months. So those both sound, and we'll preface this, kind of like the earlier CDC milestones of what you would expect a 50% child to do. This is just kind of a replication of that, which again gives me a little bit of faith because that was the 50% that was found in other, in other things, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit happy. Now... What they ended up showing was if you had a child that was one month delayed off that crawling pattern, off that crawling mean, you started to increase their risk for significant overall impairment. And that was up to about 14% when they adjusted for the family characteristics and what, have, and what have you. So they also broke it down to say <clears throat> that a risk for overall motor impairment sat at about 5.3%. 4.7 for the at-risk motor impairments. So this I like. So they broke them down into very, very at-risk kids. 
well, severely developmentally challenged children and then at risk and then not really. And then they broke down their percentages there. And you can see it kind of follows the pattern that you, you would assume it would, mm. it would follow, right? Then in the one month delay on the walking onsets, if you had one month delay, so one month off of that 12.6 months, you started to see significant overall motor and gross and fine motor and balance impairment. And all of those roll up to about just under 20%. Which is which 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 is quite big, and then the one that I was really impressed with this: if there was a one-month increase in that transition time of that pattern, if there was a one-month delay from crawling to walking, you started to increase significant overall motor and gross motor impairment by up to almost ten percent. It was seven point seven percent. So it's a you know the, the outcomes of the show like a mild delay in crawling which we kind of look at and go a lot of us will go well wait and watch because you know it's just over the eight months you know the, the onset here, you know all of a sudden we're looking at if you have the kid with all of that other background you might be up for a subsequent motor impairment which you could pick up and this we're going to pick up in that cdc paper because just because the masters have done whatever doesn't mean we leave them Till those points and this is i think what this what this paper is saying um so one or two of the things that came out of this paper super super interesting is that there's a consistent result here that late crawling onset time associates with balance impairment for later so that's one of the big take-homes and balance again makes sense because balance is that the one thing you're really going to need to move from commando on the ground up onto all four so and and it makes sense that that would take longer to get into that positioning and then of course the thing is that crawling it, it, it we need that efficient cortical organization you know that's that's part of what it does it, it you get coordination between the limbs of the trunk you get interlimb coordination going off um it, it's this it's the super novel way of getting coordination between your hand and eye going there's vestibular processing tactile stuff going on um, and it's it's really, really interesting that it had that focus in balance because all of those things kind of lead up to all of those systems working together to give you good balance. So that's for crawling, but then walking, um, what they said, and this I thought was quite interesting, is that walking is a much more powerful predictor than crawling of these of, of this kind of dyspraxia, this kind of delay. But I think it's because by then it's already showing itself more. So you're able to pick up more. And also, you know, uh, walking takes, uh, uh, I was about to say walking takes a lot more. I don't think it does. I, I think it takes very much the same. It's just you're in a different developmental place. And also- Mind you, yeah. uh, if you've got a degree of dyspraxia going on, that's often tied in with a degree of tone change. Mm. And so then you tie tone change in. So we're not getting as much cortical stimulation coming through from that. Uh, four points of contact with crawling is easier to maintain your balance than say like a two point with walking yeah yeah so it yeah. it would it makes sense for me to to see the walking being more commonly associated with that and they, they actually made that really strong statement in the discussion there as well the timing of walking onset uh was much more a power predict, powerful predictor yeah. and it wasn't just balance as well fine yeah. fine motor and gross motor as well so that's the interesting thing where crawling more just brings out the balance and crawling doesn't yeah. really predict very strongly into gross and fine motor walking starts to predict across all three of those parameters which i thought mm. i thought i thought was quite interesting and then the last one that they talk about is that is breaking that pattern between having that normal uh timing between crawling and walking 
Um, and yeah, of course, you know, as they, they make the statement in the end, they, they might need to crawl for longer, you know, because they might need to practice longer and they might need to create this, this these cortical patterns for longer before they get into that two-point walking because they need to be peripherally and biomechanically ready to be able to move into those places. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Makes sense. I thought it was a fantastically interesting piece of work. And um, and I think it was really interesting that that comes out now where with um, the, the the new CDC milestone update, things are, things are a little murky for a lot of people. Especially when it comes to crawling. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, are we going to go there? We're going to go there. We are, are we going gonna, to we're gonna talk... We're going to talk CDC document. Yeah, so it, the, the paper is called Evidence Informed Milestones for Developmental Surveillance Tools. And this paper then um, is linked up with, if you go onto the CDC website for, for their milestones, everything is updated. So they've updated all these parameters. Uh, if you used to use it and you haven't been on there for a while, it's going to look quite different. Some of the stuff is good. I like some of the stuff. Some of the stuff I'm unsure about and some of the stuff I think is just going to take time to bear itself out. And I'm trying to keep myself as objective as I can on both sides um, instead of instead of kind of allowing my personal biases to kind of jump in there and make and make the decision for me. Because they tried to. They tried to in the beginning. They really did. They jumped in and they were like, this is X and Y. Oh, yeah, don't, don't you worry. My, my caffeine riddled brain happily took the bait and went what is this? <laughs> Why have we made all these changes? I don't like changes. I like consistency. Exactly. So, <laughs> so let's look at one or two of the things that, that have changed. One or two of the smaller things, the language has changed, which I think is really, that I think is really good. It was very wishy-washy. It was very, the child may do this. The child may be perceived to begin to do something. And then everyone's sitting there going, I mean, did he pass that from one hand to the other? Did it just fall from the one? Did he look like he began to do that? So they've taken all of that wishy-washy language out and they've gone, look, did your child do X? Did she move yes. this way from one hand to the other? If she did, great. If she didn't, good. If you haven't seen it, good. And then we can... And we can exactly. They've, they've implemented what I call the Yoda principle. You know, do or do not, there is no try. Oh, yes. And so... Love that. Thank you. There you go. The Yoda principle. You can apply that to just about anything, really. <laughs> um, so, so you've picked on language there. I'm glad that you've jumped into language, okay? Because I, I, I like... So firstly, this was a study by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Yeah. Okay. The CDC essentially funded them. Ooh. And we, we, they, they essentially got a bunch of uh, experts in the field uh, to come to a, an agreement on particular uh, milestones. What was it they called them? The SMEs, the good old SMEs. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, the experts, the SMEs. That's it. That's it. And you know what? You said that. Um, if, if you haven't listened to it, Mike has done a brilliant recap of this document on the pediatric network. I strongly recommend having a bit of a listen. It's a wonderful, impartial take to this one at this stage. And I think it's, uh, it's a very good introduction for people to, to get a bit of an understanding with this one. What I might do, I think what I will do is I'll post that as well on our Facebook page on TV. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair. Yeah. And so there you see Smeez. And you know what? Every time you said that, I just kept on thinking of Captain Hook and yes, Smeez. Me too. Me too. That's why we're friends. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Smee. And um, <laughs> so all these uh, Smeez uh, developed these criteria 
to to further develop this product, uh, this this final um, yeah. document. I, I think it's uh, a, to dive into the SMEs though, because that for me was a little bit of an issue. Because I agree. Yeah. Um, okay. So, they did have educationalists in there. They did have child psychologists in there. So that did break the mold. However, as you said in the beginning, the CDC asked and funded the AAP to put together these milestones. Fair enough. It was their project initially in 2004. This, <laughs> it, it, it was the AAP's project. The problem being that I think from 2004 to now, there are so many more stakeholders that are involved in developmental delay. And I'm talking... I mean, I don't, I, I throw us in very low, well, not low into that, but I throw us, uh, I mean, there are occupational therapists who literally that is their job, um, you know, and then you get a whole bunch of developmentalists that are around and about. You get uh, us, the pediatric carers and physios and all these people that are dealing with kids on the ground and are the referral base when things go horribly, horribly wrong. So we're the people that yeah. should be involved to a greater or lesser degree in putting this together. And that was one of my bugbears is that it was very one profession heavy. Yeah, if I can. So the methods, they, they actually do state, uh, there was a developmental behavioral neurodevelopmental and general pediatricians, a child and developmental, so, developmental psychologists, and a professor of special education and early intervention. So it is, it is a good gamut of people there, but as, as you're saying, it, you're exactly right. I feel there was, a miss, an underrepresentation of a lot of other professions. Hmm. You know, we're starting to realize uh, no one profession knows everything. Yeah. Okay. Even pediatricians. So pediatricians, you can have your general pediatrician, then you've got your neuropediatrician, and you've got your immunopediatrician. So they've got their own subsets of their specialties. Uh, so the same thing happens with, with kids in their development. You know, we, we need to be looking in this situation. So you've talked about OTs, PTs, occupational therapists, physical therapists. Um, where are the speech pathologists? Yeah, the speech yeah. and language guys. Yeah. Speech and language guys. Um, these are the guys that are having issues on, 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 on social stuff. It's, it's, in a way, it is... It is encouraging to see so many different professions having similar problems um i think yes. that always kind of brings about uh, brings you closer to the line where the truth lies um and i've seen speech and language guys having particular problems that i've seen ot's having particular problems i've even seen some pediatricians having worries about the fact that you know this might yeah. be interpreted incorrectly and you might end up inversely or like uh the in opposition to what's trying to be done, you might actually end up leaving some kids behind. So, Exactly. Exactly. And you know what? That's actually one of the things that initially I had the issue with. And my, my knee-jerk, my caffeine-fueled knee-jerk response was to say, oh, my goodness, why have they changed this? Why is this now so late? Why is this excluded? And when you delve into that, 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 um, that paper that you're talking about in regards to, I think it was Zubler, who yeah. was the lead author on that one, um, it actually takes a bit of a change in mindset that we have to take with this new CDC document. Uh, we've gone from this situation of uh, previous milestones of we expect half babies to be starting to do this particular thing at this age. And I don't, I didn't use the CDC ones previously. I used a 2010 paper by Gerber, uh, 2010, 2011. Anyway, so here's one of the papers that they actually allude to in their literature search. 
And um, he's got a very succinct tabulated um, document that looks at all the different milestones and all that kind of whatnot. And um, uh, where was I going with this? Goodness gracious. So they look at uh, all these different things and I kind of go, oh, rolling is stated to be starting at three to four months from front to back and three to five months from back to front. And now all of a sudden they're talking about six months. Mm. Okay. This is where I had to take a step back and kind of go, hang on, let's take the right brain out of the equation. Let's have a look at this with my logic brain for just a moment. So I put on my logic glasses and um, sure enough, you sit there and you kind of go, okay, if we take this instead of being a document of when it's expected to happen, it's now a document of when it should have happened. Yeah. Okay. So this is no longer a document identifying when we're starting to see it start. It's identifying the kids where it should have already happened. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And I think that's a little bit of a conceptual leap that some people have to make. Uh, you know, when we're talking about like, like rolling, I've just used rolling as an example here. We kind of go six months. No, most babies, you're meant to have rolled by six months. Correct. That's the point. It's not exactly. It's not saying when it should be starting. It's saying if they're not rolling by six months, that's a problem. To the point that they've been able to remove the red flags because a lot of these milestones now effectively are your red flags. Oh, the red flags. That's right. But if we now, and, and this is where it becomes this is why this is why practice is so is so involved and this is why um developmental delay is not diagnosed by a parent going onto a website and going my child hasn't done this by then tick the box this is why it becomes so much more involved so what needs to happen is you as the practitioner need to have a good basis of the developmental tree of that child so yeah. let's say we get to walking and we go, hang on a second, this child is now, we've gone past 12 months and, and we're heading yeah. now to 18 months. What's going on? When I look back and I go, oh, hang on a second, sitting was not achieved until eight months. Uh, crawling has been late as well. Um, let's look then onto the social emotional side, because those are also, that's, I mean, the, everything's broken down into, into four and social emotional, yeah. cognitive one, motors one. So, you know, and then we start looking to the other ones and start going, hey, how many words has he got? How many of this, that? Mm. Then we start to build the picture. And even as the authors say, the idea is not to go, oh, he, he still hasn't crawled, he, like he hasn't walked and at 17 months, he's okay. What we're saying is that is a red flag there and then they need to be sent off. However, there's no rule that says that you as a clinician cannot refer before that if your yeah. red flags haven't been haven't been raised and i think that's important because one of the chaps i did hear sort of going off about it said well now that they've moved let's take walking i don't think he's walking but let's say it, it was 12 months now it's 18 months so the child that should have got services given to it at 12 months is now going to be postponed to 18 months i don't know if that was ever the case that if you had a child that it wasn't walking at 12 months that all of a sudden they would be receiving services because it wasn't delay then it was watch and wait because you go well half of the kids i get that point if the point is that now those children that would have been receiving services are now not going to receive them but i don't think that was ever the case i might be wrong but no i, I i'm with you there so if at, at 12 months it's not a problem 
Hmm. Uh, 12 months, you kind of go, oh, yeah, that's okay. And then 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 months comes up and you kind of go, and this is where it's actually had a bit of a positive change Mm -hmm. uh, because where previously you'd say 18 months, uh, most uh, are walking by then, or it's that 50% uh, by the CDC document. It's now saying it's an issue. So you would get intervention. Now, my concern comes from interpretations. Okay. Uh, like myself, when I first looked at that document, I saw six months and my first interpretation, oh, again, okay, walking, 18 months. I go, does that mean that kids are expected to only start walking at 18 months? Yeah. That's, that's my concern is do we, are we interpreting the document correctly? Okay. Yeah. Now, the reason for that concern from interpretation, I think actually comes from the titling. Okay. So the titling is it's, Uh, developmental surveillance okay now surveillance let's let's take um hip dysplasia hip dysplasia i've been seeing so many hip cases at the moment it's it's incredible it's it's very fun and um if i had a kid all right and i'm testing their hips and i go hmm this kid's got a bit of a problem with their hips. But the back of my mind, I go, you know what? A good chunk of these ones spontaneously resolve within the first eight weeks. Let's reassess it eight weeks time and don't worry about it. Yeah. And we get to eight weeks and then I test again. I go, mm, you know what? Um, again, another chunk of these ones spontaneously resolve by 12 weeks. And I go, oh, okay. And I leave it. And then I go, oh, okay, 18 weeks. Um, by then 18 weeks, we've changed potential outcomes with management. Yeah, um, and that's me taking the approach of what this this document almost is doing. It, it's saying, wait until you get to that very end point before it's an issue. Yeah. Okay. But as you were saying very rightly before, it takes it. It doesn't take into account clinical picture. Okay. My clinical training previously, I would have tested the hips and gone, this is a problem. We need to refer. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And this this almost it almost makes me want to say. Should there be a different title to this document? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you, especially in terms of that they even had to explain their terms in, in the mm. paper. They had to explain what surveillance is, what screening is, and what diagnosis is. And they sit on top of each other. Surveillance is all of us having a look yeah. around. Just to see surveillance is like the wide net in the ocean. It picks up a couple of whales, but everything else kind of gets through. Screening is when we've caught a few and we go, hang on a second, hang on a second. Now, and screening is now where you move away from using a milestone website and you start to move into the Alberta scale and you start to move into yeah. the Bailey scale and like That's it. other ages and stages scale. Because these are validated tools, but we're not going to do them on everyone. So the surveillance happens for everyone. When we raise a flag, it moves into screening. When the screening raises a flag, then we move into diagnostics. And those are very different things from each other. But you're absolutely mm. right, because the wording eh, the wording already is off-putting for a lot of folks. Yeah, yeah. And it's because of that word surveillance. Uh, yeah. Mm. So very, very interesting document. Um, look, I feel it does have other shortcomings as well. And I think there was, oh, who was it? I can't remember who it was. There was one speech pathologist who really uh, went to town on the other language side of things. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was, yeah, I think you've, you've read that one. Mm-hmm. 
um, talking about the different uh, word vocabularies, the word sentence structuring, all that kind of whatnot. Um, so this then raises the question, Mike, do you think this document, here we go, loaded question for you. Yeah. Uh, do you think this document, is it a case of shifting goalposts? So we've, we've had a lot of the community say, oh my goodness, now the last two years, COVID, uh, we've not had people getting outside. We've not had stimulation. We've not been doing anything. Um, as a result, have we deteriorated as a race and we need to sort of shift the goalposts to match what's going on? So it, it is an interesting question. I'm going to answer it in two ways. I think, one, the timing just is almost comedic that it comes out now um, <laughs> because we've just had all of this happen. I think one thing that folks need to understand is that this, the lit review for the data happened in early 2019, and the mm -hmm. formulation of what was going to happen happened in November 2019. COVID only kicked in February 2020. Yeah. So, so mm. this was already there. Is the timing horrible in terms of bringing it out? Yes, the timing is horrible because it's loaded because now we've got all sorts of developmental stuff going on. I, I, and I get that. And I get that now pushing back or to be seen to be pushing back is, 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 is very much loading a lot of guns and getting a lot of people very upset. So I get that. I'm just going to say that if you look at the timing, it's not, it wasn't mid-pandemic that all of a sudden things started to shift. This, if anything, was already starting to go. If you, if the thought process that we're pushing it back, that was already happening pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. So maybe you might want to get more worried. <laughs> because yeah. Well, it, it happened after. This was pre already. This yeah. was before we went through this stuff. So, the, so that's my first that's my first look at it. And my second look at it is what I didn't realize is that those 2004 initial CDC guidelines really didn't have a lot of data backing them up. A lot of it was clinical opinion. And what they've done now is they've taken uh, a lot of those screening tests we were talking about. They've taken data from a big lit review. And they've put their clinical opinion together. And that's what's formulated on top of the 75%. That's what's put things in different positions. So if we are failing as a human race, what, what has now been shown is that the data is showing that. Okay. <laughs> We're supported in by the data that we are. Supported in, 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 in our favor. <laughs> um, so so this is. bad. I just think it's showing what it's showing. Well, that's actually something about research is, you know, research isn't good nor bad. It's how you interpret it that's good or bad. It's, it's the data is the data. Um, the, the thing that gets me as well, okay, so this is, um, you remember back when the CDC started doing weight charts for yes. baby weight gain? Yeah. This, is this the same sort of situation as that? Because you, you, you touched on it perfectly before, common versus normal. Mm. Okay. Is it because we're seeing this so frequently? Are we shifting uh, the, this around to, to reflect what is common as opposed to what is normal? Now, I talk about the, the breastfeeding weight gain kind of issue because uh, when the CDC first released their, uh, well, I shouldn't say first, that's a very bold statement. When CDC released one particular uh, document looking at infant weight gain, so those curved charts that you see inside your infant checklist books, uh, they actually combine data from breastfed and formula-fed babies. 
Okay. Now, understanding formula-fed babies, they tend to, statistics, they tend to be a little bit more on the overweight, so I shouldn't say overweight, they tend to be heavier than their breastfed counterparts. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you combine all that data, you're going to have a skewed result because it's been pushed up by all the formula-fed babies. Yeah. So that means if you've got a breastfed baby, they're going to show up on these charts as being underweight. So okay. what you have in, in effect is, is if you have the Yoda rule, I have what I call the size seven conundrum, which, which <laughs> is exactly what you're talking about. Because what we're doing is we're taking uh, breastfed on one side that have parameters, bottle fed on the other side that have parameters. We're trying to find a middle ground because we've pushed them together. So it's like saying most men wear a size 10 or 11 shoe. Most women wear a size four or five shoe. If we were to take the average, everyone wears a size seven. The problem is no one wears a size seven. The, the, the more sort of robust way of saying that is that everyone has one testicle. If you were to take this is true. on one side and woman on the other side, it generally, it, it's not true for most people. Well, you know what? Average would be. I, I love that stat. I'm going to pick on that. I'm going to, I have to take that tangent very, very quickly. Statistically, men on average have less than two testicles. Really? Well, think about it. There's people who have had testicles removed and people who, but you don't get people with three testicles. Good. Sorry. I thought I wasn't woke there for a sec. I thought I'd stepped into a landmine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So on average, on average, the average male has less than two testicles. Ooh, three so, te anyway. I didn't know just, there were just, more of us. Okay. Interesting. Just, <laughs> and, uh, thank you. Thank you. I feel like my size 14 shoe is feeling very offended by your size seven average. So that's, um, that's all right, though, but all right. Um, sorry, huge tangent. Yeah, I, I, I love you. that one. Yeah, so have we changed that one around a little bit? Um, common versus normal. So why is it then that some babies are able to attain certain goals quicker than other babies? You know, it's really, it's a, it's a really, again, another minefield type of question. Yeah, parameters. You know? It's their parameters. It's their genetics. It's... Are they, are they uh, size? Are they, it's, it's, it's epigenetic. Environment. It's environment. Envi it's, I, I was... That's why you can't do this stuff off a website. That's why you need to have clinical expertise inside this field to be able to go put all of those together and go, aha, uh -huh, this is actually potentially on the trajectory when I take all of the family characteristics or the child characteristics into into account. Exactly right. You know, I love this. This yeah. is this is why we have good conversations. You know, it's I, I was reading a paper talking about crawling because you know this emission of crawling, I'm like, huh, why has that been taken out? You know, the the you can influence the rate of when a child starts crawling by the season that they're born. There was a study looking at, oh, I forgot now, is it Japanese, something along those lines. And kids born in winter crawled on average one month earlier hmm. than their summer counterparts. And have a guess why that is, Mike. Is it cold on the floor? It's not that it's cold on the floor, but it's because it's cold. The cold babies are wearing more clothes. So the, they're thicker clothes, so it's less impact on the knees because we know uh, babies who are crawling on hardwood floors are delayed in yeah. crawling. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's, it's, again, as you're saying, it's too multifactorial. Yeah. 
So, so here's here's my loaded question for you then. Oh no. Okay, you want to, we want to say common and normal. Now, what what the CDC milestones? What, in my opinion, what they've shown us is what's common because they've taken all the data. And they've taken clinical experience of what they're seeing. They've taken all the scientific uh, information. They've churned it up and they've gone, this is common. So, so what is normal? And take into account, we, we are one of the only species that go through two modes of transport. There are not many others that go through <laughs> a quadrupedal and then a bipedal. Who do we have to measure ourselves again to be able to quantify that crawling is at a normal stage or, or well, what is normal okay so first up i think i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a multi-response answer as well first up i think the cdc paper is important to have as common yeah. if you're using it as a surveillance okay because as a surveillance you want to see the common things okay because then that helps you identify those who are not fitting what we expect within society now, to get the normative data, mm -hmm. this is going to be incredibly difficult because what you'd have to do is get a collection of kids who fit all the parameters that we're talking about as being uh, neurologically normal, uh, emotionally normal, socially normal, uh, physically normal. They've got Born a consistent... Summer. Sorry? Born in summer? like yeah. Born in summer, that's it. There's got to be consistency among it all. Mm -hmm. And then you have to look at what they produce. Okay, and then we could say, um, if in this cohort of completely, absolutely, one hundred percent, perfectly normal children, mm -hmm. this is the age that we'd expect it to happen. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good luck getting that study done. And and if that moves back, let's say you do that study in nineteen ninety, then yes. you do that study again in twenty thirty. And there's been a three-month movement with everything backwards. Is the 2030 data, is that normal for living in 2030? Or is it delayed for a 1990s baby? See, this is the thing. Because are you normal to the bigger environment that you're in? Is it right that that's become normal? Probably not. But is that normal? And that's where my brain is doing flick-flacks. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's a fair point as well. We do have to look at it in a very um, different context. But then, you know, I sit there and I go, what has changed that it can change that much? Exactly. What have we done differently? But then look at our environment, okay? Far greater pollutions. Mm -hmm. there's, there's much more stuff inside the air. You know, we talk about the impact of uh, cellular data, Wi-Fi, waves going through the air. We... we Look, we, we say they're safe. Are they? Could they be having an impact on our neurodevelopment? And could all of those little things together start to have this cumulative effect? So, again, if you correct just cellular data, if you check just this toxin that passes the, 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 the placental barrier, if you test this, this thing, just that thing, all these little guns don't seem to hurt people. But when you fire, you know, a million of them, a million of them at once, all of a sudden you have a problem. Exactly. So I think that's what we're seeing is we're seeing a shifting of our environment, which is impacting on our wow. development. I didn't know we were going to get here. This is where this, that's, that's, that's actually my brain has just been like, you know, it's that last part of the song where it kind of resolves again. I'm like, oh. it's the environment. 
that has changed. It's yeah. part of it, as part of it, but it's the environment that's changed and that is shifting our needle because now we're driving on tar, we could go faster, now we're driving on bendy roads and now we have to slow down slightly to go through those. So it's, yeah. yeah. You know so what there I, you go. I would like to see if, oh, here would be a study, if you took Western babies, 1990 to 2020, and then you took traditional babies, 1990 to 2020, and let's see, because that might give you, as a species, where are you? But then again, would that be of any relevance to a traditional child if they were then to grow up in a Western society? Because it's all about you got to be primed for your environment. Mm. Oh, <laughs> there it is. There it is, everybody. The, the pen drop has just happened. That takes a Oh, I'm so glad we did this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, that's the epitome of the whole in everything that we're talking about here is that our environment has changed. Yeah. You know, so maybe we need to shift these things around to reflect the environment that we're currently in. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, again, it would be wonderful to change the environment. And I think that is a good thing to be able to explain. Look, hey, it might be very environmental. If you get the chance, be able to bring your environmental things down. Oh, now that then raises the next question is, if we take the environment out of the equation, yeah? So what if we start making those suggestions to families? You know, what your child's got indications of a bit of delay here. Let's let's ensure that we're eating very healthy foods. Mm. Um, let's make sure we're doing this, we're doing that. Could that become suddenly a part of management? Yeah. Environmental cleaning up. Uh, look at this, Mike. You know what? When we become the emperors of the planet. <laughs> when they finally realize and they give us the crowns. That's it. That's it. You can have the Northern Hemisphere. That's fine. Oh, there's not that much down south here. There's a big ocean and a bit of Australia. Oh, New Zealand, I suppose that's nice too. Okay. Oh, South Africa, yeah. that's oh, Okay, so there's a fair chunk down here. Yeah, okay, you can have the north. I'll have the south. Listen, <laughs> we don't want the north. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in the north. We don't. <laughs> oh, losing... you should come to us. Sorry, what was that one? People are losing their minds up here. Hey, look, you're losing minds. We started 2019 with massive bushfires and now half of Queensland's underwater. It's incredible. Oh, I saw. So it's, it's pretty much like the picture in the background here. I think that is actually a recent photo of Brisbane City. Was that yesterday? So <laughs> oh, we shouldn't laugh. We shouldn't laugh. Yeah, uh, because... It's laughing or crying at this point. So we're going to. Oh, exactly right. It up. My friend, thank you as always. It's so good to chat to you. I can't wait until we get together next time again. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in again. If you have any comments or anything, uh, 2pkairos at gmail.com is the place that you get hold of us but please jump onto the Facebook page because we would like to we generally jump on and chat with the people that chat uh, that chat with us so yeah exactly cool okay cheers for me fantastic and thank you very much Mark I'll speak to you next time oh cool cool